Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the New Books and Gender Studies podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kyle McMillan, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Kinneret Lahad, um, professor at Tel Aviv University, talking about her new book, uh, A Table for One, A Critical Reading of Singlehood, Gender, and Time. Professor, how are you doing today? I'm feeling good. How are you? I'm doing very well. So... Just to get started, why don't you give the listeners sort of a background um, into your academic career and sort of how you ended up talking about singlehood in your newest book? Okay. Well, I'm a sociologist and a cultural studies and a feminist studies, uh, gender studies scholar. And um, I think my what sparked my interest in singlehood was uh, my fascination with the ideal of the family, of the good family, of the happy family. And I began reading um, some critical feminist work on uh, family. You know, stuff um, we have um, read in uh, the 70s, the 80s, and also contemporary uh, literature on um, the ideal of, of the family and the effect it has. And the more I understood the centrality of the ideology of the family and couplehood culture, I realized that um, I want to write about singlehood, about uh, social phenomena that um, seemingly does not live up to this ideal, and what kind of effect does the, this ideal of the family have on on singlehood and also on our perceptions of the good life, of the happy life, of the worthy life. Yeah, and I found your book um, very interesting. And you focus mostly on single women. So why are people so concerned about single women and what kind of women? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um, Well, first of all, of course, singlehood is a gendered phenomenon. Um, I would love to write a book one day about single men. I think also single men are also subjected to stigmas and stereotypes, Um, but the timetables and the schedules are different. It's not that um, it's only single women who are subjected to this kind of very critical uh, patriarchal gaze. Uh, Men as well are subjected to a different kind of gaze which um, evaluates them according to their achievements as men, as potential providers and fathers. So um, I don't remember the other half of your question. Uh, I remember the single woman. Yeah. So why are people so concerned with single women? And then what kind of women in particular did you focus on? Yeah. Um, well, that's a huge question. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure I have all the answers. And um, my book was an attempt to try and answer um, what gives this um, fear, fascination, contempt, um, patronizing attitude, so much discursive force. And... Um, and there are various sorts of answers. And instead of taking the shorter route, which is to say basically, yes, we live in a very couple-oriented, very patriarchal culture, a very heteronormative culture, which, which uh, believes that um, women are, can only be worthy and live uh, meaningful lives if they are... Um, if they are taking care of a man, if they are taking care of children, if they are evaluated by men, etc. 
So this is, I think, something that we already acknowledge. And I wanted to understand what, what gives the, these assumptions um, contemporary discursive power. And I realized it was that one of the answers would be the notion of time, understanding how temporal models and temporal concepts constitute women's subjectivities and life trajectories. And this was the big project of my book, actually, um, contributing to more, um, to singlehood is still an understudied and under-theorized um, field of research. Um, definitely, if we, if we compare this to sociology of family and personal relationships, it's still very much under-theorized. And my book, in that respect, attempted um, to contribute to the theory and to provide more answers to this uh, question. My book, in particular, uh, focused on middle, um, upper, um, mostly um, white women. And we can see, we can definitely say that um, that popular culture and media culture are very much fascinated by this um, demographic group, um, also because they are perceived to be, um, and I'm putting this in quote, good, um, you know, reproductive material which is wasted if it's not materialized and through a man and um, having children. But I think here lies so much potential for further studies on singlehood because singlehood is an inter intersectional phenomenon and an intersectional experience. And um, there is still so much to be done in relation to how singlehood intersects with race, with um, sexual orientation, with women who are disabled or, or at various kinds of, of disabilities, um, it differs greatly um, according to um, demographic to geographical locations. If you are single in the city or outside of the city, it makes a huge difference. So, shortly there are so many things to be to explore, and um, this my book is in some in that respect an invitation to um, expand this field of studies, which I think has so much potential. No, I would agree. And I, I really found um, the work that you did with singlehood and, and time to be very, it was something that I had never thought about. So it was kind of a new avenue for me to explore as well. So I know that you spend sort of, you know, good portions of the book going through different examples of this. So you don't have to be exhaustive, but I think it's uh, useful to start out with what does time have to do with being single? What are some things that you found out bet regarding the relationship between the two? Well, th this was a, a fascinating investigation because as, as it occurs in many, um, many researches, in many, you know, fields of um, investigation, time found me. That was not my initial intention. I thought to write um, to write at the beginning about singlehood and social emotions, about singlehood and, and shame and happiness and jealousy and you know all these you know expand our knowledge on the um, on how emotions are socially constructed in relation to singlehood. But as what, as I was exploring um, the text, I was analyzing time, the notion of time timing, um, different concepts which refer to time, such as waiting, wasting time, time out, um, when, uh, still, kept appearing from the data. And I understood that time and how time is perceived is one of the main avenues in which um, singleism, what Bella de Paolo um, refers to as the uh, stigmas and stereotypes against single people is uh, exercised and uh, reinforced because we tend to think about these concepts as very much normative, naturalized, and varying qualities of truth. 
one cannot argue with time, one cannot argue with age, one cannot argue with, you know, the life course. We have so many models and um, collective clocks and collective rhythms and collective timetables, which were perceived to be something that cannot be um, contested. And I said, no, no, I want to contest these these concepts which we use and take for granted. So this was my project, to try and deconstruct these notions and understand how time is socially constructed, how time is a social achievement. It is based on social agreement. And here I found the literature, the sociological and um, also feminist and queer literature on time to be absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah, and, you know, I thought that was a very interesting and poignant, um, you know, social construction to really tangle with, um, especially when we talk about, um, you know, social relationships or, you know, in the case of singlehood, sort of a perceived lack of that relationship. So you mentioned that you sort of used um, aspects of popular culture or just culture writ large to find your data. So what parts of the culture did you analyze and what did they tell, what did those uh, data points tell you about singlehood? Yeah, well, it was, I admit it was a big surprise. I was surprised along the way um, because I, I found that mainstream popular culture tends to be very conservative and lacks any alternative imagination uh, in relation to singlehood and um, gendered life script in general. In, to a very large extent, it is still very conservative and heteronormative. Um, so part of my analysis in order to understand how um, social temporal norms are endorsed um, used uh, popular culture, which I refer here to movies, to television series, to songs, to cliches, etc. For example, in um, I think it's chapter seven in my book, I um, I analyze two very classical songs, um, one called um, "The Man I Love," um, performed by various. Um, Performers, and the other one is Eleanor Rigby. And through the analysis of these songs, I demonstrate how waiting and singlehood are um, you know, relational, and one should understand how waiting functions here and creates um, hierarchies of relations between single and non-single, and how the section of waiting is a gendered one in which women are perceived to be waiting for the one until a particular point in their life in, in which they are not waiting anymore. And through this, I developed the whole idea of the queue, of who can stand in line and who cannot stand in line anymore. And these, of course, are not neutral assumptions. They are socially laden and uh, very much dependent on one's age and um, one's market worth in the in the dating game and in the marriage in the marriage market. So this is just um, one of the examples how I use the, the text. And um, most of the alternative perceptions, most of the alternative temporal perceptions, singlehood, I found um, in a couple of um, in a couple of sites. Usually the internet and the blogs, where um, today I think it's the most um, potent um, sources for um, alternative articulation of uh, women's subjectivity, and also quite surprisingly self-help books, which um, there is a genre of uh, self-help books which um, actually provides women with alternative ways to imagine their lives. I've written many years ago a paper about it in Hebrew, and um, also a colleague of mine, Anita Taylor from the University of Sydney, writes um, about uh, self-help books for women in her 
papers and in her books. And that was really uh, a wonderful surprise. I, I really didn't expect that. Yeah, and you talked earlier um, about sort of the power of discourse here as well. So I thought one of the interesting um, ideas that you brought up in your book is this idea of discourse um, leading to one becoming single. So how does one become sing single as a discursive process? Yeah, that, that, that is something that I was very much intrigued with by myself because as opposed to the quite structured, scripted uh, patterns in which we become married or become parents um, or even become couples, there is no... Um, there is no clear and institutionalized and strict way to become a single. No one wishes you to be single when you are young, and then no one at a point in your life gives you a certificate or you don't have a ritual which marks um, you entering um, the singlehood life. And by using Erin Goffman's uh, concept of the career, um, I try to conceptualize and think about singlehood as, a, as single as about the singlehood career, as um, which in many ways offers us a different and a very much um, subtle way um, in which one becomes single and a particular kind of single. The irony, of course, is that we are all born single. We're not born couples and married, and um, of course we become single when we are expected to be married, and this, you know, becomes um, your um, and as more and more people in your peer group get coupled or married or have children, then um, you gradually become single, and singlehood becomes your master status something which becomes um, one of your prime markers of who you are and your identity and how you present yourself and how you are perceived and evaluated. And then, you know, um, I show this in the second uh, chapter of my book that there are these years um, in which I view as Know, the, the difficult years, the years in which single women are constantly pressured and asked and uh, evaluated and bid to get married soon or bid to find your right one, um, the sooner the better, and they should learn how to compromise. And then comes the point in which there are just um, all this calms down <laughs> and um, the pressure is... Um, comes non-existence, and then many single, becoming single is, is becoming a stable identity, and yet still is very much subjected to all kinds of stories, what happened, how did she miss the train, it is such a pity, she used to be so beautiful, it's such a pity, she's so successful, all she's missing is, of course, three, three points. But it's a fascinating social process to understand that one becomes single through the social scripts of, um, of, of marriage and couplehood. Yeah, and I thought it was really interesting, too. Um, you talk sort of, uh, sort of midway through your book about sort of how uh, women transition from the category of young single woman to woman past her prime, essentially. So yeah. is, is this transition period clear or more muddled? And why is that? You know, it's interesting. Um, during the years I've been researching singlehood, often people have asked me, so can you give me an age in which one become, one turns from a very promising young single to a desperate single woman. And of course, I could never give uh, the answer um, the different audience, audiences demanded from me, because of course, this this age group 
can be very different from culture to culture. For example, even in Israeli society, there are huge differences between um, secular Jewish women to religious women and ultra-Orthodox um, women. So the, the, the expectations from one to get married and, um, and the phase in which one becomes an old maid, of course I put this in quotes, are, um, are of course very much dependent on the social context which um, one lives in. So um, there, is no, um, there is no specific age, but at the same time, there is, um, there is the understanding that emerges from the attitudes towards you, that, you, that it emerged again and again from uh, the various texts I've analyzed in which women say, yeah, I, I think I won't attend um, family dinners anymore, or I'm not going to attend um, my best friend's wedding, and uh, because these all these occasions become as come turn into settings in which the pressure is unbearable. Uh, so I think in many ways this this turning point is very much structured by by the social gaze, uh, which constantly evaluates what is um, the social worth and what is the market value of women. And this is really one of the, I think it's in chapter five, is a particularly difficult, and I'm, talking, I'm saying difficult, in, I think emotionally. For me, emotionally, it was a very difficult um, chapter to write because um, it was... The, the way the, the, the language of the market is connected to the language of patriarchy and sexism and ageism is just unbearable. How women are evaluated according to their age, their, their ability to attract the right man, and, um, and not missing, of course, the, reprodu the right reproductive moment. And of course, the sad thing is, is the extent to the extent to which so many women and so many men internalize this logic, and this is not something that is often um, not talked about. It's out there in the open, and uh, anyone who looks into um, dating apps and dating sites can see how this logic informs our evaluation are as relevant as ever. Yeah, I thought that was uh, particularly interesting how you went into sort of how single women are commodified. And I, I believe if my memory serves me correctly, there's actually a book written by an economist that is titled something to the effect of everything you want to know about economics you'll learn through tinder or something like that so yeah it's it's definitely oh. <laughs> it's definitely a uh, theme that runs throughout and i think you really captured that well um i think that leads to one of my other questions though you kind of uh talk about in the book how singlehood needs to be in your view sort of this other lens of identity where um, that might lead to discrimination. So I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about that and sort of how you arrived at that conclusion. Yeah, sure. I think it's after I've read um, Susan Orbach's book, um, Why um, Fatness is a Feminist Issue, I realized more and more that singlehood should be a feminist issue and should be analyzed as such as feminist, and, and singlehood is also a political issue, which um, is connected to relations of power, which is related to forms of discrimination, which is related to um, symbolic violence and issues of social justice. Now, this form of discrimination is, is often not very visible, it's often very subtle, um, I can give you an example from the Israeli housing market. 
in which most houses are built for families. And uh, it's very difficult for uh, single men and women uh, to find uh, two-bedroom apartments. Now, of course, the housing market is a catastrophe, as it is for everyone. And if I would, and I do participate in these kind of demonstrations, I think that um, people who are, it's not, you know, the first demonstration I would go out on the street for. There are so many ways in which people are discriminated through, um, um you know, neoliberal ideologies. But this is just a manifestation uh, that shows how um, single men and women are discriminated in terms of where they can live and um, the possibility to afford um, their way of living. And when um, singlehood is also connected to other parameters such as class, and race and ethnicity. Um, so a single woman's um, possibility for economical autonomy it becomes very, very difficult. Living in, in, in a pair, living as a couple, is definitely um, more affordable. And I can say that about Israel, but definitely reading uh, research from elsewhere um, points is very much relevant to many to many Anglo-American uh, cultures as well. So this is just one example, but there are many more. Um, scholars like Bella de Paolo have written a lot about discrimination in the workforce, about how um, single persons are often expected to work more hours. They are taking are very much taken for granted. Um, they are expected um, not to take vacations um, at times which are suitable for them because the family-oriented vacation is valued more. There are, of course, many, um, many forms of discrimination which are related to tax, tax deduction. In the U.S., the issue of uh, health benefits is crucial. Um, if um, you can get your health benefits, better health benefits um, through your partner. So there are many, many forms of discrimination uh, which um, a singlehood scholars uh, point their fingers on and things that should be changed. The other aspect is, of course, the symbolic one and the violent one in terms of how how single people are perceived to be uh, less happy, less respectful, less trustful, um, living uh, living in the shadow of the centrality of the couple and um, family form of life. And I hope that in that respect, my my work is very political because I attempt to change these perceptions and uncover the, how these are socially um, related. And of course, I'm not saying that singlehood is better than couplehood or, or being child-free is better than being, a, than being a parent, not at all. I'm just offering, um, I'm offering in that sense to look at singlehood as another option for living, which is not necessarily better or worse. It's just another option that could be there and not, you know, a mere, you know, the end of the world as it is usually uh, portrayed. Yeah, and I think you do a really, uh, really fine job of sort of describing how both socially and legally there are these aspects that you mentioned that sort of discriminate or um, cause sort of discriminatory outcomes for single people. So I thought that was a really important point. Um, so this question goes back to the power of discourse, but you kind of bring it up uh, later in your book. But how does discourse contribute to women, you know, quote unquote, aging faster? sort of uh, accelerating the aging process. 
yeah, that that is really one part of the book which I really love, and it the notion and the perception of single women as aging faster than the married and coupled one actually emerged from a question I I raised, in which I asked myself, how come um, women who can be at the same age group, let's take, for example, a single woman who is 30 and a married woman who is 30, let's say an Israeli secular society, and one could be depicted as an old maid or as a soon to be an old maid. And the other one is presented to be a young bride or a young mom. And here I understood that the symbolic um, way in which we age, not the chronological age, but the symbolic, the social age, um, can lead me to understanding what gives the notion of the old maid so much discursive force and so much discursive power. And why is being tagged as an old maid still um, perceived to be um, such a, a terrible and um, humiliating stigma bestowed upon a single woman? And then, um, and then reading through studies about ageism, which means the discrimination of people according to their age, and the and the intersection of ageism and sexism and singleism has led me to understand that because single women do not live up to the age expectation, and because um, single women, and that's of course my, my interpretation, there could be so much, so many in that respect. But because single women are are evaluated through their age, in which age becomes a master status, they their their time is perceived to be more limited, and therefore they they're especially in this kind of very stressful time period, and this is one of the reasons I propose that they undergo accelerated aging. And this also corresponds to studies conducted uh, by scholars um, exploring um, masculinity and, ho- and homosexuals and ballet dancers and athletes, which have shown, and also a beautiful study on table dancers, which have shown that um, uh, people's end of their end of career as a ballet dancer, for example, her career can end um, sooner as a ballet dancer. So in some ways, this logic is also um, is also employed upon a single woman as well. And I found this absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was really interesting how, you know, usually we think of the aging process as this biological process. We don't really consider it as something that is socially constructed as well. So I thought that was a really important point. So you talk about uh, how much work um, goes into sort of keeping up the appearance of being a single woman. So what does that work look like? And um, how is time significant for that work? Yes. Um Writing that that um, chapter was is heavily adapted to the work of of Erin Goffman. Um, I realized by analyzing the text that many women um, find public um, public settings as weddings, as dinners, as um, dinner, um, at work-related functions, all kinds of rituals, New Year's Eve, Valentine's Day, to be quite traumatic and to be a potential um, time and place in which um, singlehood becomes hyper-visible and and also a time and place in which singlehood becomes um, 
could be a potential source of embarrassment and humiliation. And we have various um, representations of these dynamics, for example, in Sex in the City, in France, and in many of the texts I've, I've analyzed. And I wanted to understand why, what, what, what happens in the, at these particular times in which um, single women are so, put so much effort and thought of um, avoiding these um, interactions in these particular times. So one of the first things that was um, quite uh, apparent that occasions such as the weekends or uh, Valentine's Day or New Year's Eve are, of course, related to be very heteronormative ones, in which heteronormativity is the expectation and the norm. And then your singlehood is not something that you can hide. You cannot... Um, it is quite clear that if you arrive to um, a Valentine's Day or a New Year's Eve celebration on your own, that your single status at, of course, at a particular point in your life is very visible. And it, many single women feel very much exposed at these points in their time. And by using gossip, I contend in this chapter that while appearing in the couple unit, um, you are granted with civil inattention. The fact that no one pays any particular attention to you. Like when we cross one another in the street and not bump into another or sit next to or sit in the bus with um, this courtesy that Goffman uh, refers to as civil inattention. I acknowledge that you are here, but I'm not giving any particular attention to the fact that you are here. And when in these very heteronormative moments, um, single women experience what, um, what I term is uncivil attention following uh, the work the disability scholar Barlow uh, Thompson in which their um, singlehood becomes hyper visible and thus so much effort and so many attempts are, um, are directed to avoid or even renting a boyfriend of course, these are, of course, all these um, Hollywood films which deal with these issues. And more seriously, trying to cover up and appear in, uh, not in a single unit, but in a couple, couple unit. And time here plays a crucial role because you can hide behind the book in Starbucks in the afternoon. And after living in New York, um, I think, last year, so you can also get away with Starbucks, I think on Saturday night as well, but going to a fancy restaurant, or even not a fancy restaurant, or going to Valentine's Day on your own, you cannot hide between anything. And these are moments in which um, women feel very much exposed. And that they lack any control on how society perceives them. Right. And I think, you know, that's a, a very interesting point because, you know, that kind of also ties back into sort of the commodification of single women, right? Sort of this, this uh, aspect of labor, you know, that goes into keeping up these appearances. Um, so this question sort of harkens back to your second chapter, but I thought it was important to sort of lay the groundwork of your argument before asking it. But in chapter two, you, this is a direct quote from your book, but you say, the refusal to abide by these temporal schemes could potentially contaminate gender relations between men and women. So you already talked about sort of how the notion of singlehood um, sort of upholds the patriarchy, but sort of what are you envisioning, you know, as the result if we really sort of dig into what it means to be single and sort of parse out the social meanings, what could be 
this sort of contamination that you're talking about? Um, that's really a good question, which I admit I have to think further about it after we finish talking. <laughs> and um, I think in, in, in so many ways, um, being single is a refusal um, to take upon oneself the, um, the roles women are expected to take. And this includes um, the reproductive role, the physical role, the emotional labor, um, kind of tasks women are, have to take upon themselves when they enter the couple and uh, family unit. And in many respects, this is why singlehood um, presents um, and could be uh, figured as um, as a danger, as something which is not understood, which is scary, and in so many ways, um, this is one of the, my explanations in which um, I think that today uh, there is a backlash, um, which is. Of course, it has many manifestations. We can now understand this, this backlash in so many arenas in which gender relations are contested. But despite the growing rates of single women worldwide, and despite the fact that we have, if we look deeper into, um, you know, uh, into various kinds of social ways of living, we do have alternatives to the marriage and the parent kind of uh, living, but still the possibility of um, ending up as an old maid sounds like the phantom, sounds like the worst thing that can possibly happen to women. No one wishes you to get to end up as a single you are constantly bid to get married soon and that everything will be wonderful when you get get married. So in many ways, um, and sometimes it's very sophisticated ways and sometimes it's very violent and direct ones, um, there is this backlash which is very much threatened by this independence, by this economical and emotional autonomy of women that say, for example, some of them say we are better off alone and some of them say um, I refuse to compromise and others say all kinds, they, they can, they, they, in so many ways, they refuse the centrality of men and having a monogamous relationship and long-term relationship in their lives. And this very much destabilizes many belief systems. And this is also um, one of my explanations for the backlash in which we are constantly enduring in so many places, not only in the U.S. and Israel. Yeah, no, I think, you know, that sort of uh, thinking or theorizing about how to disrupt sort of these power structures is at least something that I took away from that portion of your book. Um, and I know that we, we've taken up a lot of your time today, so I just have a couple more questions. If you were to have people that listen to this podcast or read your book take away sort of one key thing, what would that key thing, in your opinion, be? It's going to be. It's going to sound a bit like a self-help book, but I'm going to try anyway <laughs> because there are so many self-help books which I really admire. Their political, political strength. I think that the stereotypes against single men and women are so violent and are so discriminatory and so humiliating. It is still perfectly fine to ask someone to account for the single status and explain how come they are single for so many years and explain what went wrong, etc., etc. If people who are reading my book 
could rethink about the violence that sometimes they inflict upon themselves and inflict upon others using these unquestioned temporal models and assumptions. If this book could give um, more avenues for imagining oneself as an adult or as a young adult or someone in their 50s and 60s and not, you know, not bracketed or articulated according to the terms of I'm single by choice or I'm not single by choice, I'm happily single or not happily single, but just as another form of living which could have various benefits and um, disadvantages along the way and could be just as complicated as couples and the parent kind of life and get rid of this kind of hierarchical belief system then the, the, the political the political objective of my of my book hopefully will help you know is to help destabilize this hierarchical belief system that was my objective in conducting um, my research and also conducting my current research is trying to destabilize that primacy and uh, the centrality of the nuclear um, monogamous um, family ideal in which we still cling to no matter how much it disappoints us and can disillude us throughout our lives. No, I think that's an excellent takeaway. And my final question is, if you were to recommend a few books for to people that either found this interview interesting or found your book very interesting, what would you recommend their next step would be? Oh, that, that's a wonderful question. Thank you so much. Well, um, first of all, my, my gratitude, and I'm not the only one who's, who's grateful for Bella de Paolo's um, books and activism. She has, um, she's a constant, she constantly writes on her blog. She's interviewed for so many papers and uh, important forms, and she is one of the scholars which I, I think, um, in particular, her book uh, "Single Out" could be a wonderful, a wonderful book to start with. Another book which I love is written is written by Anita Taylor. It's called "Single Women in Popular Culture." It was uh, published by Palgrave um, in 2012. Another wonderful book is by Jill Reynolds, published in 2008 called The Single Woman, A Discursive Investigation. And um, another very interesting book and very insightful book is by um, Trimberger Ellen Kay. It's called The New Single Woman. And um, two books which have garnered quite a lot of media attention in the last years. One of them is Eric Kleinenberg's um, book, which entitled Going Solo, and also Michael Cope's um, book called Single Arguments for the Uncoupled, which also includes some, some, some more queer theory-inspired arguments. And surprisingly, despite all this wonderful scholarship, um, it is still very much understudied in academia. There is still so much wonderful book, wonderful work to be done and conducted. So I invite the readers and the listeners um, to explore this understudied field. Yeah, and I will admit uh, it's something that has definitely piqued my interest um, as a researcher, so I'll probably have to check out some of those books as well. But Professor, uh, I want to thank you again for joining us, and I want to implore people to go out and check out A Table for One, A Critical Reading of Singlehood, Gender, and Time. Professor, thank you for joining the New Books Network. Thank you so much, and if I may, I will just stress that the book can be downloaded legally and for free in the link, so if you 
look for the LinkedIn and open access. It's a wonderful project called Knowledge Unlatched, which was generous um, to agree to fund um, the book for it to be open access. Yeah, so thank and I you think, so much. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great. Uh, it is a great resource for people out there. So again, thank you for joining us. And you know, the next time you decide to write a book, another book, you know, we'll invite you back on. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much, and take care. Thank yep. you.